Our second reading comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, beginning with the 38th verse. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village, where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I think most of us could agree that we live these days in troublesome times. At the very least, we live in interesting times. Life is not boring in our society. We see divisions in terms of politics. We see uh, economic inequality affecting people in different ways. We see uncertainty in the environment, mass shootings, uh, you name it. There are a number of problems that are afflicting our society. Probably the most severe is this tribalism that we see, particularly in our politics, which can get very ugly. Uh, Has any of these things affected you? Worked you up? Perhaps the things in society have separated you from people that you care about, your family or your friends, coworkers or others. Maybe you can't sleep at night because of it and you get uh, too frustrated to deal with things. Well, one thing that we do sometimes in church, as we did last week, is look at solutions to some problems and try and put our thinking caps on, be good, overly intellectual congregationalists to think through things. Uh, Immigration, we looked at last week. But one of the things I've been wrestling with this week is whether or not we as religious people should try and discern what some of the deeper spiritual things might be going on in society. And by looking at those more closely, maybe find some ways to help us during these difficult times. Uh, or to help society more broadly. We are people who care about God, who believe there is a spiritual dimension to life. So what is the spiritual dimensions, or at least some of them, that might be going on? One thing that we all know in society, and that I've brought up before, because it's present in my life, is that we live in a society of people who are over-busy, who are stressed out, anxious, This is, interestingly, a society-wide problem. It's not just focused on one political party or the other or one group of any debate. This is one thing we all have in common. We are all stressed out. One article I was reading was saying that 41% of people reported not enough time in the day to get done their tasks on a regular basis. Almost half of Americans just have more work to do than they can possibly get done. Between family commitments, work commitments, commitments elsewhere in life that you simply have to do. 44% of people, according to the same article, report being frequently stressed. 
And a whopping 79% of people, four-fifths of the people polled, 79% said that they were stressed out at least once per day on average. So we are overly busy, overly stressed, and what does that lead to? Us being exhausted. Simultaneously, we live in an overstimulated society. When, this is one thing I was listening to on the radio the other day, uh, on NPR, it's talking about how, what, what, what people do to relax in our society. What do we do to relax in our society? We, we watch uh, Netflix, which of course is more stimulation. We relax by seeking stimulation. We have these computers that we carry around in our pockets that are little stimulation machines, and they release lots of dopamine in our brains, and we get addicted to them. I'm someone who didn't grow up with cell phones, and I've always been a late adopter of technology, and yet I find myself constantly on my phone. I have my friends who say to me, John, get off your phone. I'm like, I didn't even know I was on it. It's so instinctual. And when I hear, I hear something, my phone buzz in my pocket, and I worry, am I missing out on something? Should, do I, need to respond? I, should, I should probably respond to this. I should, I, I, no, I need to respond to this. And they go, Hold on, let me stop our conversation. Let me respond to this text message. Or one thing that's a particular uh, sort of compulsion of mine when it comes to stimulation technology is the fact that I'm fortunate to have this encyclopedia in my pocket. And so when something comes up that I've got a question about, I go immediately to Wikipedia and start looking it up, which is why I donate regularly to Wikipedia, because given the amount of time I use it, I certainly should. You can Google anything at any time, and so obsessively I do. And in this exhausted, overstimulated environment, when we're worn out, we seek more stimulation and more stimulation in order to get that dopamine coming. And what's one thing that stimulates more than anything else? Deep emotions, like anger like cheering for your side, like tribalism. I would argue that a lot of the things that go on in our society is because we simply want that fix. And you know what? That fix comes in when you've got a meme that makes you, yes, reinforces your viewpoint and you can share. That, that triggers a dopamine a lot more than, say, long-form journalism. <laughs> or some catchy headline that reinforces your view that you can repost or go, yes, those uh, angry face, you know, <laughs> or yes, love face. You know, that kind of stuff is going on. I mean, when you look at, uh, let's say there is a great piece of long-form journalism, and you look at how many times it gets shared on social media and read, maybe one-tenth as many as the eye-catching headline that reinforces what you already like. And again, this is true with news shows. You know, again, if I'm in the gym and I want to get angry, I just look at Tucker Carlson, and I keep getting angrier and angrier and angrier. Uh, at least for me, I'm sure for others, it might be Rachel Maddow or someone else. Um, but there's that sense, but it draws you in because it, it gets those emotions. Look at novels. Uh, I mean, if anyone is, is a big fiction reader, if you look at a pop novel, a pop novel from the 60s or 70s and a pop novel today, I mean, you've gone from the 60s or 70s to like a third grade reading level today for a pop novel. Chapters are about two pages long. They're about 17 paragraphs per page. Uh, big print, and you just get read right through it because why? You need that simulation. And you're not going to get it by lengthy descriptions. So how do we deal with this? What's one, I mean, if we have this real spiritual malaise of overly busy, exhausted, and then constantly seeking stimulation, constantly feeling that need, if that's one of the spiritual things that's driving us and driving some of these problems in our society, what's one thing we need? Maybe just a chance to step back. Another thing that we see in society, tragically, 
especially in recent years, is this rash of mass shootings that go on. Seems like they happen so frequently that they're no longer news. And when we think about mass shootings, obviously people point to uh, the ubiquity of guns as being one thing that exacerbates the problem. But guns themselves, of course, are not really the core of the problem. They just make it worse. And we talk about mental health issues, which are very much there and very much present. But mental health issues, I would argue, are not as fundamental an issue as something else. And that is the social isolation and loneliness that people feel. If there's one commonality among all these different mass shooters, what is it? They're loners. They're alone. They get absorbed into an online community that distorts their worldview. And then they, on their own, go out and do something. There's no one around them to check them to say, you shouldn't be doing this. One article I was reading said that, on average, Americans today have one person that is a close confidant in their lives. The average person has one person that they feel that they can really talk about anything with. Just one. And one in four people report having no one that they can really open up to as a close confidant. This is a crisis, an epidemic of loneliness in our country. In spite of the fact that we're so connected online and stuff is going on and we live in these communities of people, people feel disconnected from one another. The Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam wrote a famous book in the 1990s called Bowling Alone. And what Putnam tracked was the fact that in the 1950s, let's say, when people went out to bowl or do things, they did it in bowling leagues. They did it with others. And by the 1990s, when people went out to bowl, they bowled by themselves. People weren't joiners. Uh, people didn't connect with others. And you see it across society. Putnam you know, measured this in depth across different aspects of society. And one thing that he showed was, and again, he called this social capital. When you have those connections with other people, real connections with other people, you have social capital. And he says you can, you can track declines in social capital and correlate it to, say, for instance, greater rates of crime, poverty, lower rates of participation in democracy, lower senses of altruism, lower levels of trust. All of these things are linked to lower levels of social capital. The more isolated and lonely people become, the more these things become problems. And you can see, it in, you can see it in our, the changes in our church life. Back in the 1950s, churches were like this one. You could look around the space and know, know everybody, or at least know most people. If you joined the church, you were immediately asked to get involved. <laughs> that kind of thing. It was a place, churches were places that built deep connections. Back in the 1950s, it was normal, I'm sure many, many of you remember these days, to attend church at least once a week, sometimes twice a week or more. Nowadays, a regular attender at church is someone who comes to church maybe once a month, and they list themselves as a regular attender. Most individuals attend churches that are very large. They attend megachurches where they can be anonymous. They go in, they go out. There's no deep connections being formed. If we want to deal with this epidemic of loneliness, what do we need? We need time to create authentic, real, lasting connections with other people. Another thing, a third thing that strikes me about society, and this is the one I think that bothers me the most personally, is what I would see as an incredible lack of compassion in society. And this really does start at the top. If there's one thing that really does frustrate me about the president, it's this seeming utter lack of compassion for other people. 
people who are different from him, people of a different political party, the use of insults, the use of language that's never been used in the history of the presidency uh, comes from there, and it, it exhibits this incredible lack of compassion that, I just, that just breaks my heart because it gives a license to everyone else in society to let their nasty side out as well. And that nasty side then comes out across the political spectrum. And you see just this incredible lack of, lack of compassion. What is compassion fundamentally? It's the ability to actually experience someone else's pain or to try and have a sense of someone else's life experience, to walk in their shoes. That's the basis of compassion. Compassion is to be able to suffer, literally suffer with, is, where the, is the root of compassion, to suffer with someone else. That's what compassion is. And that's where it comes from. And how do we become more compassionate people? The key in my mind to being a more compassionate person is to admit your own faults, to be in touch with your own woundedness, to be in touch where you fall short or are hurting, so that when you see someone else hurting, you actually can, you can feel their pain too. The older I've gotten and the more, uh, more stuff I've gone through, I've discovered the less judgmental I am because I realize how much I mess up constantly. And the more, I, the more I mess up, the more generous I am to other people who mess up because I realize how, how much I need that grace from others and so I want to give grace to other people. Nature of compassion. And it extends to a lot of different things. A couple months ago, for, we, had a, we had our clergy retreat for the South Central Conference down at Summer Falls in New Braunfels. And at the clergy retreat, we had someone came in who talked to us um, about racism and a program that he had called Racism Anonymous. So his idea is a UCC minister. His idea is to use the basic framework of a 12-step program to talk about the issue of racism. Because one of the issues that comes up in our society is that we're so often unwilling to, to actually name where we ourselves are racists. And so the, the, this program asks everyone to start off in a meeting, a confidential meeting, by saying, my name is John and I'm a racist. And then to actually try and be brutally honest with yourself about how you judge other people based on the color of their skin and, that, and how that gets into your mind. Because we all have these societal biases in us. The question is, can we be honest about it and name them? He started off, one of the things he, he said when he started off, this leader was, um, can you remember the first time that you were exposed to racism? And when we thought about it and shared some of that, for most people, it went back to age four, five, six years old. And for a lot of people, it came from their parents, where the first time that race as a concept was introduced. It's just amazing how deeply seated this is in our society. But unless we can name that, we can't actually have compassion for someone who might be different and might have a different experience. And the same is true for, uh, for other things in society. I remember when I was a, a hospital chaplain, in order to get ordained in the UCC, you have to go through what's called clinical pastoral education. And when I was doing my CPE residency, uh, part of that program, part of that educational program is taking verbatims. In other words, taking word-for-word -word accounts of when you're sitting with someone. And I remember I had this one encounter where I just found myself having such a hard time be feeling compassion for this other person. This is one of the reasons why I decided to write it all up, go with my instructor. My instructor sat down and we started looking through it. And this individual I was with was someone who had intellectual disabilities. And so my instructor, because she was a good instructor, uh, called me out and said, you know, how much have you explored this? 
Here's someone with, you, you, if you have a good brain, everyone around you is extremely well-educated in Eastern Massachusetts, you're used to dealing with all these different people. Have you really thought about what the experience would be like for someone who has a very different view on the world? Have you ever stepped into that space? And I have to say, that really hit me right. I mean, I didn't realize that I had these biases there. And I realized, okay, this bias is a real one, and I've got to wrestle with this. And, of course, God, because she's got a great sense of humor um, and loves, loves trying to have us grow, when I went out to Iowa and started my ministry in Iowa, within the first week, a church member came to me and said, John, I really want you to sit on the board of this nonprofit. And I said, well, what's the nonprofit? And I said, well, it, we have uh, homes for people with intellectual disabilities. And your role would be to go and spend time there and pray with these people and lead worship services. And I remember afterwards, I was like, I kept looking at that, and I'm like, like this, is, this, is, this is what God's calling me to do. Um, because we all need to learn. We all need to become more compassionate. But it starts with being able to name some of our woundedness and where we make mistakes. Some of the biases we might have, and be able to be honest with that. In this section of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on his long walk from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And during that journey, he stops, as he had to, every night at the home of someone. And in this case, it was Martha and Mary. Now, this is the only time Martha and Mary come up in the Gospel of Luke, but many people assume it might be the same Martha and Mary of Bethany that we see in the Gospel of John, but we're not sure. And here, Jesus sits down and comes in this space, and Martha, of course, is the one who's getting everything ready. Maybe you're, maybe you're that kind of person. Some people, when, you're like, when, you, when you have guests over, it's like, okay, time to clean, time to scrub everything. It's the one time you clean the toilets because the guest is coming over. Um, you need to make sure you've got all the right hors d'oeuvres. You need to make sure it's impressive. And, oh, do you, you need to go run and get flowers. And, oh, my goodness, this is out of place. And, oh, that place I never dust. Oh, she or he might see that dust. I've got to go clean that. Uh, and you can see Martha doing all these things. Um, and just getting frustrated again and violating actually laws of hospitality by saying to Jesus, who's the guest, hey, I want you to call up my sister for sitting there and doing nothing, okay? You can just sense that frustration. It's like, yes, I've been there. Yes, Martha, I have been you. Uh, You see me. Um, And then Jesus, of course, says to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things, but there's need of only one thing. Jesus here is calling on Martha and saying, listen, you know what you need in life more than anything else? Not a neat home, not to have all those to-do lists done, not to be overly busy, but to realize that sometimes it's okay if your house is a little messy. It doesn't matter. Because what's more important is this ministry of being with people. To create time out of our busyness, to be intentionally non-busy and be able to set aside our to-do lists. That's a hard thing to do. Especially for all the type A people I see in the congregation here. To set aside those to-do lists, to realize the importance, the necessity for all of us to have authentic connection, real authentic connection with others, and to be compassionate. I love Jesus' response here because here's Martha literally being incredibly rude to her guest. Jesus could have responded in many ways, but there's this, but you just read what his words, Martha, Martha, trying to sit down and you're worried and distracted. That's naming where she is. You're worried and distracted by many things, but do Come and sit with me. His incredible compassion just coming through. One of the best-known books on pastoral care and counseling is a book by Henry Nouwen, the Roman Catholic spiritual writer called The Wounded Healer. And at the end of this book, uh, Nouwen talks about uh, his two keys for an effective pastoral situation. 
The first is that we as individuals, because all of us are pastoral caregivers, all of us are ministers here, uh, the key first is being in touch with our own woundedness, our loneliness, our pain, and to be able to sit with that, to be able to enter that difficult space. Because again, you can't share the pain of others unless you're on some level comfortable with your own. And the second thing Nowen says is you have to create a hospitable environment. So that when someone comes down to sit down with you, you have to give that person space to be able to experience what they're experiencing in life. We so often fill up our conversations with, you know, distracting. Oh, how are you? Oh, how was yesterday? What do you think about this weather? Oh, isn't it hot? I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a master of this. You know, like I was trained in the Northeast. No emotions. Lots of small talk. You can do this. Uh, I'm a good person at a cocktail party. So if you want to invite me to a cocktail party, I can show up. But that's not, but that's not what's needed. What's needed is to create space for people to be authentic. To be able to look across and share exactly what's on their mind. Because when that happens, when you can sit with someone and be comfortable with, your, with some of your pain, and they can, you can create space for them to share theirs in that meeting of things, that's where healing and wholeness happens. Now, there are a lot of problems in society. A lot of things that afflict us in different ways. And I'll keep doing my advocacy and arguing with people and do these different things. But I think it's an important reminder to say, as spiritual people, what are the spiritual things underneath that? And how can we address it? We often get worried about things that we actually can't address on a global level. But you know what you can address? You can create time out of your schedule. You can go reach out to that friend you haven't talked to in a while, or the person you might be going through hard times, or even just in a small interaction to create time in a small interaction for space for real authentic sharing. If each of us could do that more often in our lives, when you sit down with a conversation, say, I'm going to take a few minutes just to see how that person really is. If we all do that more often in our lives, I think that we will not only be more whole and healing ourselves, but we'll at least take small steps, important steps towards healing our society. That simple act of sitting with someone, looking across the table, grabbing their hand and say, how are you? And actually meaning it.